Linux Out Loud is firing up our microphones, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banner friendly of the conversation, well, somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about Linux being the ultimate set-it-and-forget-it appliance OS. Let's get into episode 68. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by Warden and Linode. And with me today are my fine co-hosts, Wendy, the photographer extraordinaire of the network, and Nate, the person with the most unhealthy obsession with a gecko, lizard, whatever you want to call it, for a mascot of an OS. What's going on, guys? All good things. Having fun. Yeah. (laughs) Better than last week. I can tell you that for sure. We're actually getting the show recorded this week. This week's been better. I'm sorry, guys. It's my fault. You missed an episode last yeah. week. Emergencies come up, but not really your fault. What can you do? <laughs> yeah, you know, like being a mom, you kind of gotta, you know, have those responsibilities and whatnot. So I totally understand. Every once in a while, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that, like, I would say that any of it's your fault. Well, I didn't purposely plan it, but was an emergency on my family side that caused us to not have a show. So, I mean, I get it. You know. I, just, I just still wouldn't call it your fault, though. <laughs> well, thank you. I would actually blame Matt. I would say probably something he did, like the whole butterfly effect thing, probably is what mm. caused the unfortunate incident to happen at your end. That's what well, if, if I remember correctly, though, wasn't somebody late? So the butterfly effect would have started with you, and it wasn't me who was late. <laughs> I guess that's probably a good point. And, and you can blame Discord and all the other things you want, but you still were late. So that's because you were Discord ground, is blaming garbage. You were ground zero regardless. <laughs> to be fair, we've actually been recording the show a heck of a lot later, and last week we just so happened to be starting to record way earlier in the day than we had been. And so needed to give Nate a little poke, seeing if he was in a work call or not. He wasn't. He was doing some other work stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, Wendy, it looks like besides, uh, you know, the family stuff and whatnot, it looks like you got some uh, of your 3D printer stuff up and running and a bunch of other stuff going on with it, though. I can say finally, 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 and I was bragging about how easy it was to get Clipper installed on both the little board and the main board, and of course, that came back to bite me in the bum, like it usually does when you open your mouth too soon. No fooling. (laughs) So, right? So, I had... I was supposed to be editing this show because we were getting ready to go away for a long Father's Day weekend, but I started working on the configuration file for the printer and all that was going really well, had it done, went to go fire up the printer and I was getting this really weird error and I will put it in quotations in the show notes, it'll just be easier if you read it, but essentially what it means is that there was some sort of communication with the UART stepper on my Y motor. So X would home just fine, but Y wouldn't home. It would throw up this error and shut everything down. I checked all kinds of stuff. I made sure my jumpers were in the right place. I checked my cable, made sure that it was good. 
I pulled out the driver, receded everything. Like I messed with it and messed with it and messed with it. And I couldn't get that to work. So then I went ahead and swapped the X motor with the Y motor, changed that in the config file, ran it, and was now getting that error on the X motor instead of the Y motor. And I figured it was the board. The board is bad. So I actually started a return for the board, but I could not leave it alone. Just couldn't leave it alone. Kept messing with it. And I don't know what happened, but the error went away. Like all of those motors are working. I'm like, sweet, that's great. I spent a good chunk of a day getting everything re-leveled so that the bed was level. And I'm like, all right, let's rock it. Time to do the first test print. And my extruder's not moving like not moving at all. And I go back to the sample configuration file that Clipper has for the Mata M8P. And I'm looking at its pinout and I'm looking at the pinout there and I'm like, it's the same. It's the same. Why won't it move? Like the sample config file has the same pinout for what should be the extruder motor getting really frustrated. And I'm looking at the board and I start counting where those are to seat the motor cables. And I'm finding four, I'm finding nine places for motors, but this is supposed to be an eight motor board. And I'm like, okay, something's going on here. There has to be something in here, the pinout somewhere that's causing my extruder not to work. Bonus motor board is what it sounds like. You know? Yeah, exactly. That is that is exactly what's happening. So as I'm looking at the manual and I go pick up the board, yeah, there are nine ports for motors, but there's only eight places to put motor drivers. Essentially, you have motor one, motor two, motor 3A, and motor 3B. So motor threes are on the exact same pinout. They are created specifically for dual Z. And in the sample configuration file directly from Clipper, it was essentially saying that each Z motor needed to have its own pinout, where that's not actually the case for this board. So once I went ahead and looked at the manual, looked at the proper pinout for each motor number and had the pinout proper, oh my gosh, my extruder works, no problem, which is pretty awesome. I'm glad that it's working. I printed out some more boxes for that Lego robotic station that's been in the works since the beginning of the year. Yes, that is not done yet. And now I'm out of filament. So I have a working printer and no filament to use in it. If I could, I'd pass them through the camera to you because I have extra... <laughs> That would be great, but we're far <laughs> enough away. It's not like, hey, a quick drive to the neighbor's house to go pick up some filament. I think from here on out, I'm going to buy a roll or two of filament a month for a little while so that I can start building up a collection of types and colors, have them on hand for whatever projects we decide to do. My daughter still wants to do the Lego hairpin. I got to figure out how to use CAD to make that happen. But even if we had it made right now in CAD, we wouldn't actually be able to print it. So printer works. Everything's up and running. It is amazing to have the silent drivers again. I just need to get on getting some filament. Well, I think the, the filament is the easy part, really. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, all of the hard work is done. Configuration files done, wiring done, all of that's good. My cable management is way better than it was before. I definitely took some time to take care of that, make all of that cleaner. So, yeah, now it's just waiting on filament, and we will be off and running on all kinds of things, and then learning CAD so I can start actually printing some of my own stuff instead of just printing other people's stuff. Well, that will be exciting. Uh, so... Of course, there's free CAD and then also that J sketch that we talked about previously. That's also really good. Uh, there's been a lot of updates since um, since we last talked about it, so it might be even better. I have a little community shout out to my older robotics team. I can't say mine, even though I've spent quite a bit of time with them lately. The older robotics team has a CNC machine that has Linux CNC on it. And they can create their stuff in CAD. Ooh. They're just unsure how to turn that into a G-code file that they can then use with this Linux CNC firmware for their CNC machine, this custom-built CNC machine that was made for them and given to them, I think. So if anybody knows what is best to use, please let me know. You've done some great feedback on that you love the chapters. I've gotten some awesome emails and some stuff on my Mastodon. So thank you for that. If you know what to use to convert that to G-code, please hit me up. They are dying to use it. I have some suggestions for you. <gasps> Yay! All right, so there, there are a lot of applications out there. Uh, one that you can try, which I haven't tried yet, but this is a 3D, because you're looking for a cam, uh, the a CAM program, basically, to, to give the code to the, the, the CNC. Yeah. So this one called Desk Proto, have not tried it yet, but it's on my list of things to try, is a, it's a three-axis, four-axis, five-axis CNC, for CNC milling machines. It can import 2D vector files, so DXF, SVG, EPS, AI, not that AI, 3D geometry files like <laughs> STL or DXF and, and bitmap files. So it'll do, it'll do all those and then calculate the CNC tool paths for that design. And then that you can then use to you know, do whatever you need to make from that. Awesome. And, and so this is, uh, I'll give you a link to the SourceForge page. Yes, that would be great. The, another one that you can try out too is FreeCAD has uh, CAM capabilities as well. Okay. So that, that you can also do tool paths in there. I have not used it. Maybe it's good. Also, Fusion 360, you might have to pay for it in there now. I'm not sure if you do. And I'm not sure exactly which CAD software they're using. So I will check that out to see which CAD software they're using because I'm assuming if they are using Fusion 360, they've seen that capability or maybe they don't know that it's actually there. So I'll definitely ask. Yeah, uh, but those, that's what I know right now. And so I think at, at this point, I'm personally leading toward Desk Proto, not because it's the best necessarily, but I, I watched a lot of videos on this, and it looks pretty straightforward. And then it has a the starting price is free, but then if you have have more professional requirements, then it goes up from there. Perfect. I will definitely check that out and pass that on to them. And I'm sure that we will hopefully have them up and running in no time. But I'm sure the community might have some other suggestions too. So they usually do, and some awesome ones at that. Raspberry Pis are something that you have talked about moving away from in your own home for certain jobs, but you found a really great place for them inside of your new IT job, and I'm kind of interested what job they're going to have there. 
a very simple one. And in this case, the Raspberry Pi 4 is absolutely perfect for this application. Like there's, it, it's, it is absolutely the best implementation that you could possibly have. I, I wouldn't even choose a regular PC for this position because the Raspberry Pi fits the bill so much better and it's less expensive. And because of it lacks the power management stuff, it just boots to where it's got to boot to and that's it. At my employer, we have, uh, there are three warehouses that we need to have some sort of um, a display there basically to like the trucks that are coming in, who they are, stuff like that. And so just a way to organize and display the information in the warehouses so that the right product goes to the right people and stuff like that. They, the way they've been doing it has been in a more manual way. So uh, using a combination of Google Sheets and stuff being printed off and somebody who is in the warehouse like department, they identified as an application. It's a, it's a cloud-based application that basically manages all the uh, their interaction with the, the truckers and the, and the trucking companies. So what they wanted was a, a giant display with a computer to drive it and to display a specific web page. So I said, well, since it's, uh, since it's my bag and, and my, um, my IT specialist that I work with, not, not so much into the, into the Raspberry Pi space. I mean, he does play with Raspberry Pis, but that's not so much his, his strong suit. So I took it and I set them up with OpenSUSE Tumbleweed using LXQt. I'm using Firefox on there in kiosk mode, which is really easy to do. LXQt, you can set up like scripts and whatnot as it starts up really easy in the, in the uh, preferences. I also added two other applications because the screen would turn off and that's not going to work. Like it would, it would stop output to the screen because you're not moving the mouse. And I even disabled all the power and lock screen stuff, like all the, you know. So it must be something deeper inside the system that's preventing it from staying on. I installed two other things. One application called Unclutter. And what that does, is it turns off the mouse pointer. Another one called Caffeine. And those start up initially as well. So for Unclutter... When the machine is idle for two seconds, it'll turn off the pointer and then you don't see it. If you move the mouse and it would move it, it would reappear, but that's not even necessary. Since it's just gonna be a kiosk mode looking at a specific web page, that web page will update and it, no one will have to actually mess with it. So these Raspberry Pis are set up. The maintenance folks are installing the, the mounts for the, the screens and then electrician's gonna come in and drop the, the ethernet and the power to that point. I don't have to do any of that. My, my job is basically done because they're going to do everything else. So that's actually kind of fun. I can just say, do this, do that. Here, use this. And, and, there, and then it happens. Heck yeah, that's really nice. We need these monitors here and pass it on to the other department whose job is to attach that stuff, run the wires, all of that. Heck yeah. Yeah, that's actually really slick how it all works. Like the, the way LXQt does its thing, the way how Firefox has a mode that's built into it and these other applications that fit the bill. So a perfect display appliance with a Raspberry Pi 4. But these are four gigabyte models. Probably could have gone less, but I figured, eh, four gigabyte. I really, really love that idea. So my brain is constantly in robotics and first anymore. And I've recently been talking about regionals and state and all of that stuff. So it's even more fresh on the brain. But how they display the rankings of a competition and all of that stuff is through a web browser. So right now they just have a computer hooked up to a TV and that's where they're displaying it in the different pit rooms and the like. It would be so cool if we could set up something kind of like this, use a Raspberry Pi 
for that kind of thing where you can boot it up into Firefox in that kiosk mode. It's showing that specific screen and then it's just running those numbers through. Because part of the problem is sometimes you have to manually click the update and I'm assuming in the kiosk mode, it manually refreshes that page ever so often. The way these pies are set up, they won't have to refresh the screen because the, the web page will refresh itself. It's like an, a live web page that does all that on its own. But there is a way I'm sure you can invoke some kind of a refresh. I'm sure Firefox has some way of doing that. Uh, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm willing to bet there is. Well, first it's supposed to be a live web page, but sometimes you just have to manually do it because it's not. Right. So maybe that's more on their end than it is on this end. But if you could do a forced refresh every so often, just in case, then that would be pretty cool. So uh, just a quick search. Apparently there's a way to do that, I think. There's an add-on, tab auto refresh. I'll put that in the chat and maybe you can utilize that. And maybe I will utilize that if it doesn't, if it becomes a problem. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I know for sure that the FTC team that I work with is going to be hosting a scrimmage for the FLL. And we won't be able to have official scores up, but it would be kind of nice to have some sort of a board or whatever that we can put that data, that information up on. And so I'll definitely be looking more into this project. And I'm glad you have found another way to bring open source into your job that you're still loving. Yep, and I'm going to find more. Well, Matt... Looks like you're installing a, a new OS. Is this one open source? Yes, the OS is open source, actually. Uh, so kind of talked to Wendy a little bit about this last week pre-show and before, you know, everything kind of went belly up for last week. Um, the Garuda update that I had kind of borked my system. And Nate, don't even give me the, of course, it's Arch. Uh, well, of course, it's Arch. And that's what Arch does. It's, what, it's great at borking itself. Well, so here is the great thing. Because it's Garuda, it does have the, the ButterFS, BetterFS support for snapshots. It's like, okay, whatever. I'll roll back a snapshot. No big deal. Well, when the update borks your UUID and you go to a snapshot... And you try to reload it, and it tells you basically the UUID doesn't exist. <laughs> I, I don't understand. So basically what happened is if I was in a live session, or if, like if I had booted into a, like a live USB, or if I booted into a snapshot, what would happen is the root directory, or the root drive, the UUID was not being... Uh, that's tied to that drive was not booted. So I thought it was maybe a boot flag to the drive or any of that stuff. So I tried through, you know, Katie, uh, was it Katie partition manager? Okay. Well, we'll change the boot flag and we'll, you know, get it, get it pointing back to where it needs to go. Didn't matter what I did to change where it was booting, what was considered root directory and drive and all the other stuff. Didn't matter what flag I put on it. The UUID was completely borked for what the boot drive is supposed to be. <laughs> so it wasn't a flagging issue. 
So literally, I was like, well, am I going to spend all this time trying to figure out what it actually is? Because it's it's a issue. And I've before I, I get the question of the snapshots and all that stuff, I rolled back to those. I, w- I would roll back to the older snapshots. And I did, you know, I think I keep five uh, snapshots. So I rolled back to the, the, the very last one and still wouldn't update. So, like, I would go into Snapper, tell it to, you know, boot that that image, tells you to reboot, you reboot, you still get the same issue with the, the UUID is still not tagging right. I'm trying to understand how the UUID would have even changed. Like, what would cause I it do- to... Join the club. Yeah, that was my question too. <laughs> exactly. Because I have edited my FSTAB, and I don't even know if I'm saying it right, in the past because I want certain drives to auto mount, and I know mm-hmm. there's other ways of doing that, and blah, 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 blah. I get it. Um, but that's the way I've done it in the past. And I've definitely messed up my own. Uh, the first time I was doing it to the kids' gaming system, I messed it up, well, more than once. But. Um, I'll boot into a live USB fix it. It really wasn't that big of a deal for me in general, but yeah, nothing else. Like any other update I've had has not caused any issues with the drive ID. So that was some crazy upgrade you got there. And the thing is, I really don't have a lot of, uh, AUR stuff. I have stuff from the Chaotic AUR, which is a maintained AUR specifically related to gaming stuff. It does say so, Chaotic in it, so it could be. <laughs> so the actual <laughs> error update name is error failed to mount gives the UUID number uh, on real route. Uh, you are being dropped to an emergency shell. You cannot access TTY. Job control turned off. And it boots you out to root FS. Wow. So... Basically, blinking cursor didn't matter which direction I went. So I was just like, okay, whatever. The direction I would go. It's just not Garuda. Yeah, I I know. Nothing Arch-based, yeah. I'm not blaming it on Arch. Uh, (laughs) Honestly, I'm not going to blame it on Arch. Um, And I'm not going to blame it on the OS. Uh, I don't know what it was. It could have been, this is where technology is the problem in general. So I just ended up nuking and paving the drive in redoing because i was like well i have the home drive on a separate drives all the games are on a separate drive so right. other than a few like content creation things like pre-saves and stuff that are on like the actual like root drive what do i care so i, I nuked and paved it in 20 minutes i was back up and running on a new install of uh, garuda so and i haven't had the issue even you're like me it, it, you're like me, and you don't keep anything really on that main boot drive. Everything is on other drives inside the system. Exactly. Or outside the system. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, for me, I was just, it was like, because at that point, I think I had spent, like, an hour and a half, because there was actually fairly good documentation around, you know, trying FSTAB or FSTAB um, or trying and using live USBs and, you know, all, all the typical stuff I generically had already tried. <laughs> So, like, I'm not saying, like, the documentation wasn't mm-hmm. good. It was just, like, one of those, none of this is working. And it's, like, can't roll back. Okay. Right. I'm just, like, I'm not going to, this is just not worth the headache. So, after an hour and a half or so, I was just, like, nah, I'm done. Just nuke and pave. And I'm not that way usually. But you just get to the point where it's, like, Linux systems are, like, 20 minutes at this point. What do I care? 
and I don't make it. I, I don't make enough changes to the like Garuda's default setup anymore. Where I, I just don't care. So it's just like, yep, yeah, nuke and pave. Yeah, yeah, it's fast. Definitely fast. Even though, again, I know Nate's going to be. Like, oh, it's Arch. What did you expect? I, I mean, so you went from <laughs> Garuda back to Garuda, so it could happen again, and it might not. You just don't know. Roll the dice. Well, that's what I was. We like to play with fire around here. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, do, hey, you know yeah what? we do if you're not having fun with your computer what's the point so here's the thing <laughs> exactly do I necessarily agree with your decision no no I don't but I would rather you have fun with the computer and blow everything to kingdom come than to be bored so carry on young wayward son <laughs> <laughs> well I'm not going to be bored because I also installed Garuda on the two-in-one tablet that I got from Mini's forums, and that was fun. However, I also blame Ryan. Wendy, you're still getting some of the blame for this, too. Uh, there's gonna, no, th- yes, not taking it. Uh, you can not take it all you want. You're still getting it. Uh, I am buying a uh, eGPU for the two-in-one tablet because there's Thunderbolt 4 on the tablet. You're buying an eGPU for a tablet. It's pretty cool. Yes. Yes. That's the, to me. That. To me, it's a little bit insane, which is why I think it's cool. <laughs> well, that's part of the reason I think it's cool. Uh, it's honestly, insane. a lot of it's pretty much. Uh, so this will actually be my home computing solution. This is kind of where I've been trying to get because basically you close up the two in one and it's like, oh, hey, look, computers put away. My my lack of free space is taken care of in, you know, closing a keyboard basically <laughs> and putting something in a bag. So for me, it's just a space saver solution. And I'm not going with anything like super high end on the GPU. I'm not going like, you know, 4060 or 4090 or, you know, whatever NVIDIA's stuff is or AMD's high end stuff is like, I'm just looking at like, NVIDIA 3050s and or something like a RX 580, like the 8 gig models, just so there's a more oomph than what's provided by the onboard system um, for mm. that. In the case I've been looking at, I've been looking at either like some of the Razor Core stuff. There's, um, I think it's Sonnet has like, I think they're called Sonic Breakaway cases that are also uh, very Linux compatible. So there's a few different options because I did look specifically at Linux support, but um, that's going to be a purchase not right now at the moment. Roughly, it's about a ha- about $500 worth of purchase. So that's a buy this, then buy that. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. But uh, I-, I think it's a-, it's a fair compromise solution that I've been looking for. So, um, and that's really what the, the two-in-one purchase from Mini's forums for the tablet or two-in-one, whatever you want to call it, uh, was really for. So I think it'll be an interesting solution to try. I don't know how those will do on a <laughs> on a 4K tablet screen, but I guess we'll find out. Well, and the whole goal is to keep everything small, portable, but this eGPU gives you some additional power so you can use it for some workloads, maybe some better higher quality gaming kind of see how it goes i'm excited i'm excited for some feedback after you get this all set up i am too i'm interested in seeing how uh, the state of egpus and linux is today 
yeah, well, that's the see, that's the interesting thing because I I do have another mini form system that is a dual GPU system. It's got the Vega, uh, I believe it's integrated Vega or it might be Radeon. I don't remember what. Either way, it's, it has dual GPUs, uh, the integrated and the the dedicated. And it's always interesting because sometimes Linux gets a little confused about which GPU to render stuff on, unless you specifically tell it. Uh, that, that is something I've noted. It's the same issue with NVIDIA and Intel systems, though. I'll be totally clear with that. Um, and NVIDIA's got its own issues. <laughs> yeah, but we won't talk about that because it gets really sensitive when you start bringing it up. <laughs> yeah, when, it, when you start pointing out its problems. Uh, <laughs> starts to blame you. Kinda, Does it blame shifting thing? It's it's terrible. Well, it's kind of like when you point out the issues with AMD. It gets a little sensitive. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah. No, AMD doesn't get sensitive. It's all the the fanboys of AMD that get sensitive. The Intel chip actually breaks down and cries in your computer if you start talking bad about it. Well, it can't be. I mean, it's about as good as you know Intel remembering that they put out uh, dedicated GPUs, like when they canceled the new uh, the Arc 770 cards. So it's over in the corner crying. But we're we're hoping that that uh that they'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> Visit Linode.com slash Tux and see why over a million developers trust Linode for their infrastructure. From the award-winning support to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers and businesses have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Linode offers the industry's best price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including shared, dedicated, high-memory, and GPUs. Probably even better than your eGP you're going to get, Matt. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible, allowing you to focus on your customer, not your infrastructure. Visit linode.com slash tux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit. So aside from cloud hosting, Linode recently added GPU hosting plans for machine learning and neural net use, built with RTX 6000 GPUs but those were not cheap. I guarantee they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Given that they're NVIDIA cards. Yeah. <laughs> With Nate talking about things like Raspberry Pis and me having a specific use case for particular machines and hardware, we got to talking a little bit over the last actually couple of weeks, honestly, about kind of Linux being the ultimate set it and forget it kind of appliance OS. And if you actually look at Linux, it kind of has a long track record of being just that. Uh, everything from point of sale systems, etc. There's a ton of stuff that I can think of. But uh, Nate, would you say Linux is probably the best DIY purpose built kind of OS that you've used? I mean, we, you know, we have paid solutions like QNX and a lot of the other stuff, but for me, I've seen uh, Linux be the, the best option generically for most people looking to kind of roll their own solutions. The reason I think Linux is the best choice for rolling a solution is the amount of momentum behind it of people doing things with Linux. And so Maybe your exact solution doesn't exist, but you can cherry pick bits and pieces from a variety of solutions and create your own solution that fits your particular use case. And so the tools that exist in Linux make that really easy to accomplish. 
I mean, it's a large part of the reason why a lot of retro enthusiast, you know, uh, hardware has some sort of Linux involved in that process. So a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the old games are preserved because of Linux and those variety of open source tools. It's actually pretty cool. They, they, they're even using Raspberry Pis to emulate entire CPU architectures and interfacing directly with that old hardware with the benefits of Linux. So yeah, I, I absolutely think that Linux makes the best set it and forget it appliance OS. And why do you think that is? Is it because unlike Windows, I guess you can get custom builds of Windows, but it's not auto-updating, so it's not going to interfere in those times which it's being used. Yeah, I run a pie hole at home. For the most part, I don't think about it. But every once in a while, I'll just stitch into it and make sure that everything's updated and ready to go. I actually probably need to update pie hole itself. I've updated the base recently, but I haven't actually updated pie hole. And it runs on the system all the time, whether we're here or not, and just keeps going. And I don't have to worry about hey, it's going to update in the middle of something and throw off whatever flow. It's a major part of my internet right now. But what other parts of Linux do you think makes it this perfect set-it-forget-it appliance-type use case? Just looking at the companies that have built entire brands around that use it. TiVo. Early TiVo, I don't know about current TiVo, but TiVo was always based around the Linux itself um a lot of the mid-2000s media players that were coming out like the kind of the around kind of the time of the ipod and like the ipod nano and all that stuff there were bigger media players that were coming out from like arcos and a few others they they rolled uh linux specific for that device um the ps2 literally shipped with yellow dog linux (laughs) you could make it a computer granted that was sony's way of getting around paying taxes on certain things, but hey, business. Uh, you can make the argument you can make the argument for Android. Say what you will about where people view Android at the core. It, it's a generically a set it and forget it kind of OS, or at least intentionally was originally supposed to be. Because it's purpose built for phones originally. I'm saying originally, not currently, not whatever Google not whatever Google's whims for it are currently that change from day to month, to week, to hour, to minute. But like I mentioned earlier, you have point of sale systems. I've seen Red Hat systems. I've seen Ubuntu systems. I've seen OpenSUSE systems. And then you have things like digital signage, which, you know, people are putting Raspberry Pis in it. Here's some digital signage, you know, throw an OS on it and have it just scroll through a gallery app, basically. So it's all like... I. And the fact that you can set up certain things like cron jobs to auto-update these systems and stuff, if you you know go that route, and it's just like once you put in the initial work, it literally can be in a set it and forget it type system. And speaking for myself, I've done whole you know Cody systems that are literally set it and forget it. Like once it's set up, I don't mess with it. It auto-updates. I add new stuff. It auto-updates, and I'm fine. Like that to me as a DIY kind of solution. Yeah, the initial, you know, couple hours you might put into it might be a kind of a pain. But on the same note, those couple hours in the long term pay off because you're not dealing with some of the um, more idiosyncrasies of trying to square peg round hole a lot of things when it comes to 
uh, some potentially some of the pre-made solutions that are available. As an example. So I guess essentially what I'm hearing from you is that it's highly customizable. And so you can take Linux and customize it to exactly what you need for this piece of hardware, this job. And then it can just go on its merry way doing that job. And you don't have to worry about all these extra bits and pieces that are thrown in there and unnecessary for whatever it's supposed to be doing. Bingo. Because basically, unlike a... Uh... Nate, you've probably dealt with these or seen these before, but like the Windows point of sale systems, those decide to update whenever they decide to update. <laughs> True. You're not in control of that. So like that that's just an example. Like you're at the whim of that where these once you determine that set it and forget it, you can be as involved or as disconnected from it as you want to be. I mean, Nate, just look at all the stuff you're doing for uh, a lot of your home automation and all that stuff. Your Christmas lights, as another example. Yeah, it's really nice because I don't have to really worry about it. Uh, so the, the Christmas lights, yeah, I do update it. Not as maybe not as frequently as I should, but it just keeps running and it's not really reaching out there in the internet, out there to the internet. So other than to check for updates, so it's super nice and convenient. And then you know, again, the Home Assistant outside of you know clicking to do updates from time to time. That is very much a set it and forget it appliance. But yeah, it's it's pretty great. And, and I think that the other neat thing about Linux in general is the fact that you can trim all kinds of stuff out of the kernel that you don't need. So if you custom build a kernel for a specific purpose, you can trim that thing down to the bare bones of just what you need. And in as such, it keeps you a lot more secure as well because there's you know less code means less surface area for attack and for some applications you don't want to have a lot of rough in there you know because maybe it's really reduced hardware or whatever some embedded type devices to so be able to reduce the code reduce the size of your software is just even more advantageous one of the what i think is a kind of a cool application is vehicle entertainment the uh i have a a 2021 Chrysler Pacifica. It's a hybrid vehicle. And it runs all the, the, the entertainment piece of it all on Linux. So the games, the watching DVDs and everything, it's all, all on Linux. And I know this because periodically it does crash and I can see the Linux Penguin as it's rebooting and kind of makes me laugh. So maybe that doesn't lend itself well to the reliability of it. Well, <laughs> it, it was Chrysler and Chrysler doesn't exactly do, you know, the best job at a lot of things. They probably just pushed it out there. Oh, it's good enough. And didn't synchronize things very well with the hardware. But anyway, it does recover, so that's not a problem. Well, I was going to say, in fairness, that's probably not so much a Linux issue. That's more of a, a vehicle OEM who does not do software. It's kind of like when hardware people try to do software. And what's the result 90% of the time? Usually really bad software. Yes. So that's kind of where I, I, I would probably fall that but yeah the upshot there is it means that that with enough time and effort i could probably make it way cooler nate i'm surprised you haven't tried putting in your own uh, vehicle entertainment system okay so i thought about this i'm gonna i'm gonna bounce this off you tell me what you think (laughs) (laughs) not surprised totally not surprised bingo the two front seats the like the bucket seats that has the the built-in displays that, you know, fold closed, whatever. There are HDMI 
ports as well as USB and USB-C all on that chair. And I would, and so then I began to think, you know, maybe not, maybe this would be a little bit hacky, but not totally hacky. I could very easily plug a Raspberry Pi into the HDMI port slot and power it right off the chair. I know that works because my Commodore 64, the C64, it's a ARM-based re-implementation of the Commodore 64. I plugged that in back there and played on it sitting in the chair using that as a, using the, the van as a power source. Anyway, let's, so you take a couple of Raspberry Pis, you power them off the chair, display everything on there, and then, and then you could get maybe two more Raspberry Pis and just some screens that you can strap onto the headrests of the, the second row of bucket seats. And my thought is, we could actually, all, you know, all four kids, or I have three kids, but three kids and a friend, they could play like, like Minecraft Pi Edition you know, all of them at the same time while we're going on a road trip. So I think that'd be kind of cool. And then because of the way the whole system in- integrates, I can actually, well, only if I'm stopped, but the, the front seat would actually be able to play, like the, the, the center console could actually then view one of uh, the other two built-in displays of the van. Anyway, so I was thinking, yeah, that could be pretty cool to have a little network inside there. I'm sure I can use the the access point that's within the van as well for them all to interoperate on as well. So it could be a a driving Raspberry Pi rolling fun. I love this idea. When are you doing it? Uh, when the pies come back down <laughs> in price. That is for sure. Yes, the prices of those definitely need to come <laughs> back down in order to make it more feasible. But I expect this to happen by hopefully next year because they plan on releasing... A bunch more pies throughout this year, so. I mean, I just need four pies. It's not that's not uh, that hard to come by. I could probably repurpose this Raspberry Pi four that I have. I'm pulling out of a thing, yeah. and there's a Pi three that currently running Home Assistant, but I think it's going to be retired for a uh, replace of the next eighty six machine. I don't know. I'm thinking I could I could probably mm-hmm. get at least a couple going. It wouldn't all have to be done at once, but it'd be a lot cooler if it was. Yeah. And that exactly is why I say it, Linux is the ultimate set it and forget it appliance OS. Because you literally can make it whatever you want and or need. And be it from an OEM or a DIY person. I know for me, I'm, I'm more of a, hey, let's take this Steam OS, Chimera OS, and make this a game console. <laughs> like, that, that, that was my shtick for um, the last implementation of uh, any specific appliance use. Right now, so uh, the, the putting a tar, uh, putting Chimera OS on the Atari VCS and turning that into a you know small form factor steam machine, great little box for that. So right, it, it's stuff like that, and the fact that it auto updates. I don't have to worry about it. It does its thing. It you know literally just click update and that's it. But like that is exactly what every person wants. Because I can tell you, having worked in tech, and Nate, you probably, because you have to deal with, you know, administration of certain machines now, you know, certain patch days that come out every week, once a month, depending on when Mm -hmm. certain people decide to put them out, not the most fun times. (laughs) All right. Now, I got to say this. If, if instead of running all these Windows systems, because the way you have to patch it is actually kind of tedious it's not really an, i mean they, they it's not really an automatic process 
So you have to go in each machine and have different patch sets and everything else based on the hardware. And I kept thinking, man, insert Linux package manager here would just do this automatically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. But that's my point. Like, if you try putting any other OS right now, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, on those type of machines, like sp- specific built, one product category kind of machines or one use case kind of machines, those trying to cram a generalized OS onto that is just asking for problems with it. Because like you mentioned, you have too much cruft around everything else with it. So you're bringing in too many vectors and different angles of where things can go wrong. So I I definitely agree that uh, the it's stuff like that where I think why companies have looked more and more at Linux specifically to kind of build on top of. How you want to talk about how certain companies will implement what they build on top of Linux, totally justifiable. But the fact that it's still built right. on top of Linux and originally will have a appliance approach to it, it says a lot about the platform and its modularity as a whole, despite the kernel design and all the other, you know, kind of more esoteric arguments you can get into about stuff like that. So... I think it, it, I think it's a fantastic set it for you system. Linux isn't technically a monolithic kernel anymore, and it hasn't been because you have the dynamic kernels modules you can load and unload. That kind of breaks it from being a true monolithic kernel. It's now somewhere between hybrid and monolithic, or it's it's not really a true monolithic anymore because you can load and unload modules at will. You're not again. This is why I said I didn't want to get into the nitty-gritty esoteric stuff but the point remains and that's the nice thing with the modules is that you can take all the all the cruft that you don't need and run a stripped down kernel that's why we get distros like tiny core and other things that you know are like right you know four megs or whatever <laughs> yeah they, they have linux distributions that'll fit on a floppy disk still not a whole lot you're doing with it but the point is you can do it <laughs> now would that be a live floppy disk is the question. Ooh, I think it probably is. Ooh. There you go, Nate. I'm sure you have a floppy drive kicking around somewhere. Test that out. Guaranteed. I have to look it up now. <laughs> All right, so it's from Hackaday, running modern Linux from a single floppy disk called Flop Inix. <laughs> Flop Enix. Yep. Interesting. All right. So if you want to add these to the show notes because it might be fun, uh, there you go. Definitely can. See, that's the thing that's, I think, really cool about Linux is, you know, so there, there are a lot of things that they've kind of dropped support of, but it just means that they're not actively working on it. It doesn't mean you can't pick it up, dust it off, try and cram it back in there and make it work because of the open source nature of everything. Sure, mainline kernel isn't going to have something. Doesn't mean you can't really make it happen. So anyway, that might be fun to do just for, just for kicks. Me, I expect a report back. <laughs> All right, I'll see what I can do. I think I have something I can blow the dust off and, and make it work, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite set it and forget it is Bitwarden, and that is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager 
as additional authentication, such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. But if you're like me and you want to show your appreciation to this super awesome open source project, you can get that premium account. It starts at just $10 per year. What's in that premium account? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage, and Generation Plus Priority Customer Support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. If you're like me though, you're going to want to show some love to Bitwarden and get that premium edition, especially where it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. So now that we've talked about building a appliance-based machines for Linux and everything else. Wendy, you actually have recently, mostly for at least your kids, built kind of an appliance-based machine, specifically around gaming. Looks like your kids got you playing games. Yeah, they do. I don't know where my daughter found this game first, but she tried to appeal to me with, but it's a puzzle game, mom. And the kids actually bought the game themselves, two copies of it so that they could play together. Because it is, while you can play by yourself, it's really meant for more than one person. And this game is called Phasmophobia. So if you haven't heard of it before, you are ghost hunters. You're going into these different maps, different houses. There's actually a couple camping sites. We haven't played those yet. And you're using your different tools of the trade to figure out what kind of ghost is in the house. So you're looking for different clues, whether it's fingerprints, freezing temperatures, um, how high it goes on the MF, all kinds of different things like that. And I think there's like 20 different ghost spirits, whatever, that can be found inside this house. And you can die. It's one of those games that you can die in. If you have a ghost that can hunt then you can eat it, and I have at least twice. So the first time we went to play, the first time my oldest child talked me into playing this game, she didn't give me any time to learn the controls, like none at all. She'd played a few times before, and it was like, <laughs> Mom, I want you to play with me. Okay. And we're in this house, and we've been in there for a while. The first five minutes you're in that the house, wherever it is. You have five minutes before the ghost can potentially start hunting. So it's kind of a free five minutes to get acclimated or whatever. And that time was over. The ghost started hunting. And she's like, help me close the doors because we were trying to hide in the closet. I'm like, I don't know how. And of course, watched her die in front of me. And then as I'm trying to get out of the house... I die too. So the first run through the game wasn't all that great. And so I told her, okay, I've got to learn how this works. We need to at least play a couple games through where it's a friendly ghost and we can just go in. I can figure out how the keyboard works, what I need to do, all of that stuff and not have to worry about it. So we played, I think, two or three games together over the course of a few days where it was a nice ghost, no hunting. 
And now we've been playing a little bit together with the unfriendly ghost again. It is definitely enjoyable. I love the puzzle aspect of it. Um, I would have to say it's probably one of the most stressful games that I've played. Like most of the puzzle games I play are very casual. I Okay, so Creepy Tale isn't necessarily so casual. I've died in that one multiple times actually in Creepy Tale 3. Um, Auntie killed me multiple times before I got that level figured out. That's beside the point. But typically the puzzle games I'm playing are this casual point and click kind of game, relaxing. And I would say that Phasmophobia for me is not a relaxing game. There's no way I could play this game and then go to bed because I'm on edge. Not only are you trying to figure out what your different clues are to make sure you're making the right choice, but you're also trying not to die. And if you've seen me play a game where I have to have any skill in movement or speed on the keyboard, it doesn't go so well. So, Wendy, you had to play with Casper the Friendly Ghost? <laughs> we have played some rounds with Casper the Friendly Ghost, and then we met Casper's brothers, who are not so friendly. Casper's angry brothers. <laughs> Very angry brothers. Because <laughs> they didn't get ice cream. There was the one who I was talking to on the spirit box, and one of the ways that you have clues and who it is is if they'll write in the journal. And the one, I was like, would you write in the journal, please? No. Would you please write in the journal? No. Can you write in the journal for me? No. I also had the one that asked if it was friendly and it told me to run. Um, yeah. <laughs> Some of them are not so nice. I mean, just watching a little preview on the game, like the little um, whatever on, on Steam. It gives me like yeah. a bit of angst just watching it because like, you couldn't get a, a better flashlight. That's the best flashlight you got. You don't have like a floodlight you can carry around with you. Are the, it's on well, and you can upgrade. You can upgrade the tools as you go. And yes, the ghost will chip trip the breaker sometimes. Or if you turn on too many lights in the house, you'll trip the breaker. And you have to go in and find the breaker box. It's usually in a horrible position. Sometimes it's in the garage. Uh, sometimes it's in the basement. And I've always found unfinished basements creepy anyway. Even more so in this game. They're they're incredibly unfun to be in. So it's definitely a puzzle game. And it's one that if you do have a VR headset, you can play in VR. The kids are playing it on the living room system with a VR headset. Just fine. No issues there. Playing amazing on Linux through... Uh, whatever it is. I can't remember what it's called right now. Proton. Playing it awesome through Proton. So if you would like a very creepy puzzle game, then this is one that you can pick up and use it on VR. But you don't have to. I have not played it in VR at all. I think the only game I've played in VR that I actually enjoy is the Beat Saber game. Other than that, most of them make me sick. And... It stresses me out enough just trying not to die that I don't want to be in a VR position in that case. But I have other kids that play it just fine in VR mode and enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah, it's probably not a game for me. I think I would it would just mess with me a little bit. I mean, it looks like a, yeah, like a fun game. I mean, I see that the TV is on. You have to turn that off, like on a test pattern. I was thinking, why not? Yeah, why sometimes. Why would you turn the TV off? Mm-hmm. 
We want more light. Well, it depends on the ghost. You have some that candles, they don't light candles, so they'll blow out the candles. Or we had a poltergeist the one time, so the poltergeist was not only throwing stuff at us, but turning on the TV, turning on other things around the house. And some of those help you like pinpoint clues, oh, that's what this is. And the thing is, is when she was first telling me about the ghost and the poltergeist, the first thing I thought of was the poltergeist movies from the 80s and she said you know they're usually not too bad at least the poltergeist that we faced was one that was a friendly quote-unquote friendly poltergeist at least it wasn't going to kill you i said something about how i'm pretty sure the little girl from the movie wouldn't find the poltergeist friendly (laughs) now i've heard about this uh game before uh and which is weird, I don't actually own this, but um, I know mostly because it's generically for VR. Um, I do enjoy seeing people, like, the reactions to people playing it, though. That, I think yes. that's kind of the <laughs> the fun aspect of this game. Like, if there's a social aspect to, like, watching a, a Twitch stream or, you know, a, a kick stream or a YouTube stream of somebody playing this, it's just to see their kind of initial reaction to how stuff happens in the game. Yes, yes, absolutely, for sure. You can play it on VR, but it works just as well, plays just as fantastically on mouse and keyboard or with a game controller. My daughter prefers to play it on game controller. I prefer keyboard. I've got a couple of kids that prefer VR headset. So it really does take your preferences in mind. And this game is still in early access. I think they are getting close to the full launch. If you want it, I highly suggest that you buy it in early access. It's only about $14 right now. And they have said when it's officially launched, they will be raising the price of the game. That's good to know. I don't think I'm going to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing you are looking into buying is either 3D printer parts or possibly a new 3D printer. Yours is down again? So the... I've been having this like issue where it'll print fine and then it'll the thing will get jammed up, the, the film will get jammed up inside of the, the extruder like there's some sort of massive heat creep. And I did everything that I know how to do and I said, you know what, self, I was going to buy that Sprite print head anyway, so why don't you just go ahead and do that and um, try again. So that's what I did. I got the Sprite print head. I have it in my hand, in, in fact. I meant to uh, start on it already, but, well, you know, things got in the way. What I really like about this, the, this Sprite print head is that, you know, if you have, a, you have to change the thermistors out from time to time, at least I've had to because they get, get all wacky. Yeah, I've had to do it once, and it was a bit of a pain. Right. So in this one, you have a PCB on the back of the print head, which is kind of cool. And actually, I'll turn on the camera for... Uh, for you to see, but everything just plugs right into there. If you have to service a part on here, it's a very short run, and there's a giant ribbon cable that goes off the top of this thing, and then it's got to be routed through. So it makes for nice for maintenance. This will make for way less pain to replace parts because it's all right there. Everything is just attached near the point of use, and it's a lot. It's a lighter print head, and also not as tall. So so when the when the ender goes to its I'm done position, 
it's not going to keep breaking the filament. It snaps it off against the ceiling of the uh, of the printer. So this is this will be I think will be great. I was going to have it done today, but I had um, work things kind of get in my way. That happens. That happens to me all the time. I am looking at it. It looks like it's an official ender part, and I'm a bit curious how this works. So I can see the ribbon cable that runs from that PCB on the back and through. I'm kind of curious how that attaches to the main board. Does it have different split ends on the back of it that go into each respective position? How does that work? So it's just swapping out whatever you have there that's already on the board. So it's it's not a huge change. And you just have to pull out like the anything that all the, the lines that go to the extruder, all the, the, the cabling, you just pull all those out right. and replace it with this. This also has the additional option of like the, the touch leveler, the auto leveler thing. So that might be kind of cool in the f- for a future edition. I absolutely love mine. I bought my Ender 5 Plus with the BL Touch on it. I've only ever used the BL Touch, but I find it to be amazing and just leveling the bed in general. So I will get a, a base level using a, at least I did this last time, with a leveler that you'd use for carpentry mm-hmm. or whatever and set it on the bed on the edges in the middle and get a base level on it. And then I'll heat the bed to the temperature, which I will typically run it at. I've been doing a lot of PETG, so that's 70 degrees Celsius. Set it to that and then let the BL touch run, do its thing. Then I can look at the bed and make small adjustments from there until I have things pretty close together. It's never going to be perfect, pretty close. And then the setting that I have on my printer is every single time it goes to print, it'll run that again. And through Clipper, I can actually see a graph of what my print bed looks like in graph form, which is pretty handy. So I don't need to readjust it very often, but I can always run that bed leveling and be like, okay, it's a little off again. It's time to go back through and tweak it because I do have the springs. And I had a kid that was trying to be helpful in pulling a print off the other day. And he was trying to pull the print off with the glass bed still on hmm. it. And I, you know, of course, ah, don't do that because any pressure that you put on that bed that's applied to the springs can cause those little knobs because mine are still the knobs on there to move down on those screws a little bit, which then throws off the bed leveling. So I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I know with Octoprint, you can see a visualization of what that bed level looks like. Incredibly helpful in having better print quality. Well, I think you just sold me. I have to do that next. You're welcome. Well, Matt, when you just enabled me to buy something else for my 3D printer, what are you going to enable like, the crowd on this time? Well, Nate, funny thing is, I've already enabled you to buy this thing. Yes. In fact, when I was showing you my print head, I was using that camera. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, GameSphere is now kind of what the game of the week was. So we're looking at deals and all the other stuff. And like, if you want to get into streaming, uh, generically, the webcam of choice is usually some type of Logitech, like a C920 or 930, or you know, if you want to go like mirrorless cameras or like if. But that's all super high end and cost a ton. If you're a person just starting out, you don't have you know. Wendy, what's a what's a mirrorless camera from Sony cost like? 
1500-ish, maybe. It depends on what generation <laughs> you're going. But, I mean, you can spend as little as, I think, 500. I think Ryan picked his up on clearance for three. You know, it just kind of depends on where you find it, and you can definitely get them used. But not cheap by any means. Yeah. So this particular webcam uh, does more than the C920, which is locked at 1080p, 30 frames. 720p, 30 frames. That's just what you get for resolutions, etc. This particular webcam is a 1440p. If you go into OBS, it is not locked at 30, even though the advertising says it's 1440-30. It's actually 1440-60. The overall price for this webcam is $17. That is absolutely amazing. You did talk about this webcam before, and so... Not only, I think it's actually priced better than it was mm-hmm, when you originally bought it, but now you've actually had some time to use it, to play with it, and you're bringing it back to us again, so it's worked really well then? Uh, so, generically, yes. So, you're either going to have to use something like GUVC to fix a few things, or some of the internal settings on certain apps. I use it mostly specifically for uh, a lot of content creation and that stuff. So that's just what I use it for. So it does tend to have a kind of a blue hint to the overall image. So you have to adjust some saturation and, you know, contrast and a little bit of that. But generically, besides that, it's not going to be like super clear, sharp, you know, video camera or high, high ISO kind of quality but if you're looking for a consistent frame rate and decent quality for a entry-level price that doesn't make you basically have to use entry-level crap like five below style like here's a 480p webcam kind of stuff this is a heck of a buy um, at, at that price honestly so for me the the few trade-offs Yes, it's only yes, it's an Amazon product. So if you have problems with Amazon, you're not gonna enjoy that. But I think the build quality is fairly good. I think the fact that it does have a privacy shade, it's literally just a piece of plastic that slides over it, despite what any marketing might say about it. Um, I haven't tried the microphones. That's the one thing I haven't tried, just because I if it if I have you know microphones why am i going to use a webcam mic let's be you honest. have a dedicated mic yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so I, I i can't speak to that but when it comes to webcams i'm more concerned about quality like as far as everything else so i think it's a fantastic buy at that price and i can't see why somebody wouldn't do it i mean i got nate to buy actual new hardware from amazon no less let that sink in amazing so what i did was i mounted the camera above my workbench. I have a two by four that's kind of levered over the workbench. And I have this thing that I bought that has like a little, uh, for a camera mount, basically it's got the little screw thing that you put on a, on a camera. And then I have that going to a little uh, telescoping rod of sorts and connected to the camera itself. So I can move the camera around and get different angles. And then in OBS, I just basically spin 180 degrees. So works pretty great. Um, one thing I did forget to mention, it does have a mount on the bottom for like tripods and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's how I'm using it. Um, so, yeah. So. Exactly how I'm using it. 
there's no magic Jenga to make it work. See, ironically, I did a comparison. I recently was given a Razer Kiro Cairo, uh, it's Razer's webcam. It's like a $50 webcam. 1080p uh, 30 and 720p 60. I actually prefer the cheaper webcam. I, I will say the default image quality is better on the Razer. I will say that. However, the feel, the, the depth of field of the view is better actually on the other webcam. And once I make those few adjustments, the gains in image quality are kind of not really all that big of a deal to me um, that I would get on the, on the Razer. So $17 or 50 something dollars. I'll, I'll, if I'm a frugal person, which I am, I'll spend the $17. Very nice. I'm glad to actually get some feedback from you and how awesome you find it to be. Nate showed off his here a little bit, not only this week, but last week after he got it installed. So it is a multiple use camera, even if you already have a really nice webcam, but you're looking to add a second camera view for content creation or whatever. This is a great way to pick that up. Definitely. And it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg like some people assume you have to spend. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topic. Take the discourse forum, drop us a line under this video or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com slash contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. You can find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Gamesphere, Linux Saloon, and much more at TuxDigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I pause my game to be here. That's a lie, I don't actually. Oh, it's obvious. Or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. It just means sinister means evil. As always, we. I'm not evil, but if you watch the video of Hardware Addicts, because that podcast is getting video, you will see some red light behind me. Mm, a little phasmophobia in real life. That's fantastic. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Lennox Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly and the conversation somewhat on topic and have fun doing it.